Well, welcome to Rebecca Matthews, who is a councillor with the Wellington City Council to the Kaka. Um, Rebecca, thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure to be here to talk about my favourite subject. And mine, housing. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 housing, very, everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, I noticed that uh, there has been some action in the Wellington City Council around whether certain homes and parts of the city should be eligible for intensification. Last year, there were some massive debates inside the council uh, about the new district plan and responding to the government's medium density residential standards. Uh, could you tell us, you know, what the council decided last year and, um, you know, how it all worked out? Because it was a pretty intense debate and we thought that was the end of it, but maybe not. It's, it's been an emotional roller coaster, and actually goes back before last year to our, first of all, our spatial plan, where we made some key decisions, which were seen as probably an exciting moment for housing in New Zealand, and that we won some key votes uh, to increase the walking catchments, which means how far from public transport stops you can uh, allow more housing to be built, and also around how much you protect old houses. And um, just like in Auckland and in lots of other cities, uh, our inner suburbs were dominated by older housing, which has been protected from demolition, which means you have to have a re resource consent to knock it down. And in Wellington, before the spatial plan and then the district plan, we, we were presenting uh, uh, protecting 90% of our, and over 90% of our inner city land that was available for housing with these single dwellings, which was not good. And <laughs> <laughs> from my perspective, not good. And we won decisions, you know, very heated debate uh, on generational lines. Um, but we really won um, decisions in the district plan, in the special plan, which uh, got rid of nearly all of that protection. And what's happened recently is we've gone, planning seems to be a never-ending story. It's sort of... Just as long as, you know, it's been around nearly as long as these houses, it seems like this process. Um, but we're now in hearings uh, for the district plan where commissioners kind of take over the process. And then turned out our staff get to offer advice. And they're more than advice. They've given away with one hand and, and you know, they've taken, <laughs> they've given us some stuff, but they have actually put in protection for more of these old houses again. Um, they're saying that they recommend to the commissioners that they reverse the decision that was made by an elected council and protect them again. So, so, so what I can't understand is how the council, uh, council, council staff can look at that decision, which I'm sure there's a minute and <laughs> there are rec records which say very clearly, uh, take out uh, um, 72% of those, um, those villas from that character zone. Mm -hmm. And they've put back in, uh, upwards of 800 of those villas back in there. And I'm trying to get my head around, how can they do that? Well, they have, you know, in the planning process, they have a right, um, to, or an obligation to present their expert advice. And you know, I said they'd kind of given and taken. They they have their expert advice on the Johnsonville train line and whether or not we put more housing in on that. They also went against, against a council decision there, 
which was a very stupid council decision, which said the Johnsonville train line is not transport that can, you can do build more housing around. But that was a very clear one and that it was very clearly set out um, in government policy. And it's really a question is, is that train a train? <laughs> but this one around the old housing, I see is quite different because it's much more of a nuanced decision. It's how much old housing. And um, or you keep forever, you protect forever, um, or even that you protect forever because, of course, most of these old houses will stay exactly where they are because the people that own them won't demolish them, regardless. But um, the council's role in protecting them, the officers have said they've gone back to an initial assessment they did for the spatial plan where they got experts to go and look on every street and say, does this street, you know, meet? So they've gone back to that assessment and advised the commissioners that they should overturn the decision that we made as councillors and keep protecting those old houses. And, and yeah. what's what's their argument in terms of, you know, these houses are so special, they need protecting. And if they were not to be protected, the world would be a, a much less better off place. And I'm trying to get my head around, well, if they say that, have they taken into account the lack of housing supply and the ongoing unaffordability of these homes when they've made that call? Yeah, I mean, there is some analysis about the impact of doing that, um, but it's largely about protecting the streetscape. So it is largely an aesthetic decision or recommendation, and it's also largely a preservationist one. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question, I think, about the quality. There's two kind of issues here. Is that the right advice? I say no. Uh, should this be happening? I also say no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the process. And I mean, these hearings are all kind of, in a sense, this is kind of a battle between a, a kind of a few scrappy kids and lots of older wealthy homeowners. The whole kind of heritage um, sector. Um, and, you know, one has a lot of power and resources and the other one doesn't. So in these hearings, you basically have um, residents associations, um, the, the heritage crew, lawyered up to the hilt and who have all of the time in the world to sit through these hearings and participate and make their voices kind of heard. Whereas on the other side, you have young people and renters who have none of that resource in order to do that. So the whole process to me is weird. It does defy belief. And even when I explain it, I still don't really get it because, you know, it does feel like we made decisions that would involve more people through our election, our elected status than anything that happens subsequently. So, yeah, it's bizarre to me as well. So, so what's going to happen now? What's the process now? So the commissioners, they take all of this kind of um, evidence into account and they will report back to councillors. Then councillors get another crash, <laughs> you know, bite of the cherry, depending on what the commissioners come out with. But, you know, they may agree with our staff recommendations. They may go further than them. They may, you know, hold our decisions up. We get another crack, but really, if we disagree with what the commissioners come back with, we don't get to change it. Still, it goes to the minister. So it goes to the minister for the environment, make a decision on the, on what the actual outcomes and what will go into our final, final, final district plan. I just want to add too, this is apparently the fast track part of the process. <laughs> 
<laughs> because it doesn't have environmental, you know, um, uh, appeals and all of those kind of things. So there's not a kind of a legal appeal for the public at the end of this, as there will be to other parties. Do these people so, have? Do these people have no shame or any uh, sense that that it's their grandkids and their grandkids' mates who rent who are going to um, be living in brutally expensive, unhealthy? housing and and they're going to be okay with that uh, no, really i mean this has been such a weird difficult horrible journey to be on because i came on to council i just assumed having enough housing so everybody could have somewhere to live near where they wanted to it was such a clear public good but i didn't really i mean it feels like an innocent bunny hopping through the woods that i thought nobody was against it and when i came on to council i saw that this whole thing was a racket to stop housing being built, you know, and within our organisation, around the council table and in the community. And um, I, you know, it just made me so mad. I couldn't believe the injustice of it. And that all of the resources and all of the power seems to be stacked up on one side against the other. And as a councillor who's pro-housing, I mean, I'm the devil incarnate with, you know, seven people in our community. It's just, how dare you upset the status quo? How dare you? Would you want, all these people are like, would you want five-story apartments built next to you? Yes, I would. <laughs> because then people would have homes to live in and, you know, the pricing of, prices of our housing would come down and we'd be able to grow as a city, um, you know, and, and especially these areas, these inner city, it's the best land that they want to tie up forever with their, with their old houses. And for young people who rent these older homes, you're often terrible places to live. They might be nice if you live in one and you've restored it and it's beautiful. You bought it cheap in the 80s or 90s. But that pathway is closed off to younger generations and they live in them as really crappy rentals. <laughs> but, I, you know, we don't feel that these kind of old houses represent um, our future in any way. So it sounds like there's a cultural issue inside the council uh, um, mm -hmm. and culture is harder to change than policy, uh, um, or even people. Um, but eventually you can change culture when you, um, change all of the people. Um, so how do, how does this change? Cause it, cause at the moment from a distance, Wellington looks to be the only place with a progressive majority on the council and a progressive mayor. And it seems like the only place where, um, the demographic, the democratic deficit as talked about by the productivity commission over the last 10 years or so. Uh, may not seem to apply because a lot of the young people who are renters do vote and they outvote um, the people in the leafy suburbs. And yet even then, the, um, the, the council staff um, are in cahoots with the villa owners and subvert the democratic process behind the scenes. So how do you change that culture? I think it, it is changing and I think it has changed to an extent. And this is, I kind of joke that this kind of recommendation coming back was sort of a, a heritage <laughs> recommendation. You know, it feels like kind of an echo of, of a thing that we've moved on for. I don't see, you know, I could probably comment a lot more easily about some of the um, recommendations made by Auckland council planners and Christchurch council planners that really make us look like a progressive pro-housing utopia in Wellington. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, there is, there is some issues with, I think, this kind of profession more widely and the 
processes that we still have, which government has tried to kind of circumvent, but it shows where they don't dot every I and cross every T, that councils find some way to get out of it and look for the way to get out of it. And, you know, I see that generally in local government that stopping things is so much more of an attractive concept for many of my colleagues than actually doing things. So, yeah, and I wonder, um, is that because over the last 30 years or so, the Local Government Act has some very strict rules in there about um, councils never being able to run deficits? And effectively, because of the way the Local Government Funding Agency works and uh, the way that higher debt is used as a um, a dog whistle, in a way, uh, to those people who want to stop change, um, are, have councils become almost, um, in a legislative regulatory way, designed to say they are the places where you have to talk to the hand because the law around the financial restrictions that councils operate under mean it's a good idea to say talk to the hand because then you never have to invest in infrastructure and take on debt or increase rates faster than they already are. I think that's true. But I think even if, you know, and I've heard these arguments, uh, if we change the funding levers, would it change the decisions and the outcomes? And, you know, my view is still with the elected people that we have, even if money fell from the sky to if we enabled more housing, we'd still vote against it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very close. It's on a real knife edge and it's still about those issues of blue votes. Um, who, yeah, so, you know, we've kind of tipped the balance here in Wellington, but only just. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very, very hard kind of ship to turn around. So I think we're doing the best that we can, we can given those constraints. But... Yeah, I think some of these, you know, when I hear debates at Auckland Council, Christchurch Council and others, I'm just like, honestly, the funding is often an excuse for things they don't want to do anyway. It's about change to the status quo. So that's that's an interesting um, and I think accurate way of describing the situation. But then I look at national politics and see that both both parties, Labour and National, are very pro-immigration and population growth. And I'm trying to get my head around, you know, many of these people who are saying no at a leafy suburb council level are also members of um, both National and Labour um, who are saying yes to migration and population growth at a national level. And I, I wonder if there's a, a disconnect here where people say, no, I don't want change and I don't want growth, but I do want population growth and I do want nominal GDP growth and all that comes with it, which means low deficits and low interest rates. And has someone called out that fundamental disconnect? Or do people think, oh, it's okay, it'll be population growth somewhere else, just not, in, not, in, the, not in a way that changes my leafy bits? Yeah, I think that is part of it. I mean, it's very interesting um, experiencing all this as a Labour councillor because I think that the the structures that we've been able to put it's quite interesting you know there's this kind of oh don't have political parties and in um in local government but it's actually been through having blocks of labor and green councillors that we've been able to get this change in wellington and almost to a person the independents have which are quite quasi kind of national have been against this kind of growth so it is i, I think there is you know 
in a way, if we had more of these kind of debates out in the open um, about where people stand on this kind of stuff and being willing to be accountable and when you're part of an organisation that sort of supports at every, every level. So I think that, you know, we've been able to influence, you know, I hope that it's worked both ways in Wellington, you know, that as kind of a Labour council that's very strong on climate action and, and pro-housing, that we've, you know, responded to that from a, from a central government, but also influenced it. So it's, it's you know, I see it mainly as kind of ge- generational, um, these issues that, you know, the problems are just undeniable for people that don't own homes and who are, you know, under, you know, younger than me, I'm 50, so I'm kind of a, I'm a generational kind of um, sellout and that I'm kind of, because I'm a renter. And so I'm kind of aligned with kind of young people in a way that people my age generally aren't. Um, yeah, it's just that gr- that group, we have to outnumber them and we have to outvote them, we have to out-organise them, and we have to change the structure <laughs> to allow all of those things to be effective. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm interested too. You know, obviously there's people within Labour at the central level um, who have, you know, pushed very hard in all sorts of ways. And even some are national, you know, the MDRS, uh, uh, was a joint Labour national thing, at, although Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop uh, um, have to hide under the table whenever they go to a national party meeting. But um, uh, you know, th- there are there is a generation at the centre who also uh, understand the need for extra housing, but they still let you hang in the breeze when you ask for the money for the infrastructure to enable the housing. Because you can say, you can change the lines on the maps and the rules on the maps as much as you want. If there's no money for the bus station or the buses, or um, you're also not able to um, tell Waka Kotahi to allow these big roads to be um, uh, made accessible and safe for cyclists and the likes, mm. it's, it's all a bit performative. Look, I mean, I don't know. And in Wellington, it's interesting because we do have a lot of transport money on the table, you know, and let's get Wellington moving. So we have got government wanting to be part of that conversation. And I would say the barrier has probably been council as much as anything um, because they're changing to the streetscapes. And we're, you know, we're building, you know, cycle lanes in our streets like like Billio, you know, and it's, a, it's the only thing that people object to more than they do new housing is, is other ways for people to get around. but. Um, I guess in our city, we're kind of facing, you know, the problem is so acute, both in transport and in housing, you know, it becomes undeniable and it's undeniable on a national level too. And but it's on when it pe- comes down to the local level, that's where people lose their nerves. Um, but I would say that, you know, water reform, you know, which is not perfect, but it will help us. You know, Wellington needs it. These are not assets we're losing, they're liabilities. Um and and transport, you know, we have got we have got government on the, at the table, you know, with, with some help. Maybe not enough. I would like more, but it's still it's you know it's still our decisions which continue. Now, one way to get change is to get the business sector behind you and arguing for it. Um, you you think of the uh, protests against apartheid as one very distant way of doing this. Um. It only really got traction when the big international corporates realized that it was costing them money to, to have apartheid in South Africa. And so they pushed back at the government you know, from the very top. 
when someone turns up with a suit and you know and tells you that um if you continue with this policy it's going to hurt the economy uh, people listen i'm curious as to why the business community in wellington including the universities all of the tech companies the um software developers the movie companies who need these young people to do their coding and to actually you know live in a in an apartment or a house while they're studying and are, are deciding not to come to Wellington to either work or study because of the housing crisis. It's now notorious within New Zealand, let alone, you know, the rest mm -hmm. of the world, that Wellington's a lovely place for a coffee, but try and get an apartment for a decent price that isn't covered in mould um, and just give up now. So why hasn't, you know, uh, the Chambers of Commerce, the, you know, the, the, Digital Gaming Association, um, wedded digital, you know, all banged on the doors of um, the councillors and the mayors and the ministers and says, this is a crisis for me as a business. I can't get the people I need. Why don't you mm. fix this? Mm. But then it's haven't been against us, <laughs> which on housing, which has been good, you know, and I mean, I would like to see more of those interventions because those workforce issues are just, I think, going to get worse and worse in the city. And, um, you know, I've been kind of clinging that my own personal chimes of doom around these issues, you know, ever since I got elected, um, we've seen, you know, for example, health services shut down because we couldn't get healthcare workers. So it's, it's a government issue too. Um, we've seen, um, you know, definitely the tech companies, they are telling us um, that it is a problem and it is core to our economic strategies as a region. So I think that it is there, but it would, it needs to be more powerful. And I guess it needs to, we've done a kind of a, a period where we've had like an enormous fight as across the community and that kind of intergenerational kind of thing. So we, we do need some of those resources to come up on the side of housing change of transport you know that's one where we've seen kind of businesses kind of work against us to a large extent because there's this kind of view still in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary that every time we take a car, take away a car park at you know a shop or a cafe is going to shut and um so it's uh, i think it just needs to get louder and stronger and maybe you know the problem needs to keep getting worse and so more people will <laughs> come to come to the side of the light Rebecca Matthews, uh, a councillor with the Wellington City Council, thank you so much for being on the Kaka. Thank you, Bernard.